You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of a webinar entitled Losing Face, the push for non-face-to-face transactions and features experts from Chargebacks 911 and Payline Data. Okay, we're gonna get started here. My name is Jared Wright. I'm the uh, head of marketing at Chargebacks 911. For those of you not familiar with Chargebacks 911, um, we help merchants by uh, preventing chargebacks, and also we um, help them respond and refute illegitimate chargebacks um, that we were unable to prevent. Um, I'm also I'm really excited to uh, welcome Andy Roth, who is the Director of Strategic Partnerships at Payline. Um, I think this is the first uh, webinar we've done with Payline, so I'm real excited to have Andy join us today. Um, Andy, do, do you want to uh, take just a moment here at the top and tell us a little bit about um, what Payline does? Yeah, absolutely, Jared. Appreciate the intro, and yeah, very excited to be here just to share some knowledge on, on these uh, these topics today. Um, yeah, my name is Andy Roth. I'm the Director of Strategic Partnerships here at Payline Data. Uh, we're a merchant services uh, we're a merchant services processor here in Chicago. We were founded in 2009 and processed for over 25,000 clients nationwide. So whether that be franchises, your mom and pop shops down the road, uh, we are you know your your one stop shop to help facilitate those payments. That is great. All right, so we're going to get started here in just a minute, but just to give everyone a sense of how the uh, webinar is going to be structured, um, the first part of the webinar um, will be a presentation. Primarily, Andy's going to do speaking today. Um, I've had a little bit of a a COVID issue that I've been dealing with this week, and so I asked Andy if he would uh, take a a lion's share of the responsibility today, and he he said uh, he stepped up and said absolutely he would do that. Um, So he put together a really good deck that covers a lot of the topics that um, we talked about on the landing page. Um, And that portion um, won't be too long, probably about 15 minutes, and that'll be fairly visual. So if you can, um, that's the time where you kind of close other windows and you you give us your attention for that part. Um, Then for the second part, what we'll do is we'll answer a lot of the questions that were submitted when you registered. Um, And um, that part, of course, is going to be a little bit less visual. So if you want, that'll be the type of thing that you can kind of listen to while you work on some other stuff. Um, We do encourage you to stay with us today. Um, We will be releasing a recording of the webinar. However, um, I can't guarantee that all the Q&A section is going to be included in that recording. So if you want the most out of this event, um, we encourage you to stay with us today. Um, This webinar and other webinars will also eventually be published Um, on our podcast. So if you're an audio learner, I encourage you to check out our podcast. You can search Charge Forward with Chargebacks 911, however you listen to podcasts, and uh, you can add us to your subscriber list. Um, Okay, so we're going to get started here. And for those of you where this is the the first webinar that you've attended that I've hosted, um, at the top of these webinars, I like to ask a dumb question. It's uh, it's something I, I started forcing myself to do way back when I first started doing these because I realized I I was uh, having the opportunity to speak with different industry experts and I, you know I, I felt like I wasn't really uh, uh, brave enough to ask some some pretty remedial questions. So I've uh, I've I promised to to make myself uh, embarrass myself and ask a dumb question at the top of each of these webinars. So um, Andy, is that okay? Do you mind if I ask you a dumb question? Yeah, no, no question is a dumb question. Fire away. <laughs> well, wait, wait till you hear this question because this is. <laughs> I actually feel a little bit dumb for this question because I, I tell you, you know, I went to your website and, um, you know, usually what I like to do is I like to kind of dig around and look for a phrase or look for a term or something I don't understand. And and one of the services that you guys provide is um, ACH payments. Sure. Now, ACH payments is a term that I would never normally admit that I wasn't 100% clear on. Um, I've, I'm sure I've been in conversations where I, I nodded and I know a little bit kind of about what they are. But to be honest with you, I, I don't think I'm, I could tell you. Um, so um, I, that's kind of my dumb question. Could, could you just, you know, like I'm five years old, could you explain to me, yeah. kind of walk me through what an ACH transaction is and uh, maybe explain how merchants might be able to utilize them? Of course, of course. No, no, not a dumb question. ACH is obviously, you know, for a lot of people, it seems like such an industry term. Um, ACH itself um, actually stands for automated clearinghouse. And, and the way that I like to phrase it very simply, it's an e-check. It's when a client is processing the bank account and routing number 
associated to their customer. Um, and obviously getting those funds back into their bank account. So rather than taking cash or credit card, think of uh, ACH being taking a check and typing in the routing and account number from your client. Okay, so that's the thing where you say, hey, go find a check. And then it usually will walk you through a, a process and stuff. Now that's gotten a lot, lot more streamlined in the last few years, hasn't it? it like I, yeah. I know that it used to be a really big deal when you would take a check over the phone or you had to like photocopy or fax something in. Maybe I'm showing my age yeah. here. Um, but but has that become streamlined a little bit? And and is that is it different than something like Zelle or like how does it tie into wire transfers and you know some of the other newer systems for bank bank account to bank account type things? Yeah, good question. It's definitely similar um, to Zelle. Obviously, like with with Zelle, you're kind of at the helm of ensuring that you know your bank itself uh, accepts Zelle, right? Where for for ACH trans, uh, transactions, it's long, as long as somebody has a legitimate bank account. And can give you the proper bank accounting routing number so kind of like a wire but again thinking of it like as a check right like it can get kind of going back to the old styles and to your point um on streamline yeah they've definitely made improvements um as to some of these check services um i think you know previously you know it was a bit daunting um and a bit aged to your point but but they're definitely making improvements um to help facilitate that transaction to be a little bit quicker too um, check transactions aren't always, you know, the fastest transactions, especially compared to like a credit card. You know, credit cards, you're most likely to get one to two day funding. It's pretty standard in the industry um, to get three to five day funding um, just because there's a more of a checks and balances um, that goes that goes through just to verify that transaction. Yeah. Well, that's that's super interesting. And it, I think the last time I did something like that, I was really surprised. Because if you think about the number, you know, just if you if you type in a credit card number and then you need to remember the three digits on the back, and then sometimes you need to go through another, um, you know, 3D secure window pops up, or you know, there's a bunch of different stuff that you have to do. But ACH really, if you if you think about it, it's really just the routing number and then one or two other numbers, right? So it's it's really almost the same amount of effort to key in that information. But but you're saying that the main obstacle from a merchant standpoint is is just the it takes a little bit longer to fund and maybe customers aren't as used to going doing that is that is that kind of the reason why it isn't um i don't run into it as often as i am just a regular tr uh, credit card transaction yeah exactly i think you know convenience of using credit card especially from a consumer standpoint um you know getting those points back the cash back whatever um uh, is going to be more benefit than you know doing a direct debit from that um account associated with the checking uh, account routing number um so it kind of you know increase or it gives more control as to your your accounts receivables and your, your accounts payable. One one thing that's you know definitely interesting about you know checks itself is of course the cost associated with it, right? So you know as business owners continue to focus on their bottom line, you know ACH is inevitably going to be more cost effective than credit cards. And the reason behind that is you don't have to worry about paying Visa, Mastercard, Discover, or Amex their specific interchange rates. Um, so that's why you'll notice even sometimes um, with some of the softwares, you know, uh, back at one of my old apartments when I was paying rent for them, you know, I can pay with a credit card, but they would actually pass on a surcharge. However, if I just typed in my bank account and routing number, there was no surcharge. So just ways just to kind of think about, you know, how it's going to be beneficial, not only to the client, but of course, the business owner themselves. Yeah, definitely. Especially when you have sort of the, the thin, thin margin type business. Um, you know that two or three percent or whatever it is for the for the transaction um, can can make a pretty big difference. All right, awesome. all right. So let me give you a keyboard control here real quick, and then I will let go and uh, let you kind of take things from here. I might interrupt you if I have any questions, any more dumb questions, but um, but you should be, should be able to press up and down and advance the slides. Uh, yep, just doing that quick test, and it looks like we are good to go. Awesome. Well, Jared, again, thanks, thanks for the intro. Thanks for the dumb question. I promise you that was not a dumb question. I'm glad that we got into a lot of the detail there. Um, you know, as we focus on this webinar for push uh, pushed for non-face-to-face transactions, um, one of the big topics is, you know, within the industry itself, what what is MOTO? This, this word on your screen that you see, and MOTO actually stands for mail order or telephone order. You know, a bit dated because, uh, you know, personally, I can't tell you uh, if I've ever actually done a true mail order before, but think of these as, again, non-face-to-face -face transactions that happen when the credit card information is going to be keyed in. So whether you're calling that information in, um, whether um, 
it's using an invoice, um, things of that nature. Um, just think of it as uh, what's going to be considered and what you'll see a lot within this presentation as a card not present transaction. To start, I think it's obviously important to note kind of where we are at with everything going on. Obviously, Jared, I hate to hear that you've come down uh, with some COVID symptoms and we hope that you get a speedy recovery. But, but obviously, as a result of everything that's happened over the past uh, couple of years, um, coronavirus has actually done a lot for the payment space in, uh, in terms of digitization. Um, so it increased it by about two to three years, which is pretty incredible to hear that, you know, some of the technology that we have access to right now um, likely would not have been ready until 2024, 2025. Um, you know, one thing I, I saw that was pretty funny on the Internet. Um, it said that no one has had quite uh, a comeback over the past couple of years, like the QR code. You know, we, we used to see it every now and then, and I think it was very rare, but now you can't go to a restaurant with, uh, to pull up a menu without seeing a QR code at times. Um, so I thought that was, uh, that was pretty funny. And the pandemic has turned a bunch of local businesses um, to spread their reach, right? No, no longer are they, you know, uh, locked into, you know, their physical location, you know, these uh, online orders, these non-face-to-face -face transactions have allowed them to reach a larger audience um, outside of their typical geographic region. So a local business now might be able to become a national business by taking payment online, over the phone, what have you. Yeah, Andy, uh, you know, when you talk about this mail order, um, telephone order, and when you talk about um, the the uh, pandemic and stuff like that, it reminds me because you know, we've, we've had the pandemic, we probably shouldn't admit it, but, you know, all of our customers are e-commerce customers. So we've seen um, an increase in chargebacks that they're receiving. And we've also just yeah. seen an increase in their business, which is an increase in our business. Um, but, you know, it, it, sometimes I forget about the the sort of other ways, the, the other types of card not present transactions. Um, and so when you think about, you know, the smaller businesses, the smaller mom and pop shops, and they're sort of struggling with, you know, how do we, how do we stay in business? How do we, uh, uh, you know, service our customers where, where, you know, the customer may not be inclined to come in the store and, you know, be in a crowded store. Um, you know, the, the mail order, the telephone order, the keyed in transactions, um, you know, it, it makes sense that that's something that, that a, a lot more businesses are turning to. Um, so I just want to kind of echo that and uh, um, sort of, sort of reiterate that we've we've definitely seen a uh, seen an increase in um, in those type of transactions. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's interesting if we think about your local communities, right? And talking about some of these mom and pop shops, um, you know, these businesses, you know, your your local diner or something like that. Maybe they started offering um, delivery. Um, you know no longer can they get business by people actually sitting in and enjoying their meal you know they're they're going to have to take payment over the phone um to get that order and obviously you know take it right out to your car or what have you so uh again these card not present transactions have definitely taken over um if you will um and one i think important piece um as you'll see on the sc screen right now is is just the increase in terms of um money that's actually being transacted uh, on a per user basis so the U.S. has the highest transaction value in digital commerce uh, within 2020 compared to um, other countries with an average of $7,000 per user. Um, so in the next five years or so, call it from 2020 to 2025, that average value per user will be $12,000. So each year, another $1,000 is going to be added per user. Um, so again, just reemphasizing um, the push when it comes to card not present transactions. Yeah, those are interesting numbers. Do, do, you, do you think that that 5,000 is just due to the increase in the economy or are you thinking that people are just going to yeah. more and more money is going to be allocated to that digital channel? Yeah, I think that, that it's a great point. You know, right before this, I was thinking between stimuluses, between inflation and all that, obviously that's going to take hold. But, you know, at the same time, now that we're really getting ingrained um, to the convenience uh, of not card not present transaction, it's becoming a new norm. It's becoming a new expectation. Um, so having less human interaction as the as the slide shows when payment occurs, um, you know, text to pay options, um, things like that, these are gonna become more nor normal. Um, 
clients don't want to necessarily be held to, hey, you know, in order to pay this business, I need to go see them. Um, so I just think because it's becoming more of a norm, and I think there are going to be, uh, or there are some economical um, instances where, of course, it's going to increase as well. Um, but to your point, I think it's a, it's a slew of things. So what, one of the main tools that individuals use for these modal transactions um, is a virtual terminal. A virtual terminal is simply a web-based dashboard that allows you to submit your client's credit card information or ACH information. Sometimes it will be embedded within a particular software that you're using, or a lot of your merchant processors will utilize uh, what's called a virtual terminal or gateway offering uh, in order for you to have access to, to, uh, to run those transactions. As you'll see on the screen, uh, there are many features that this tool offers, what a virtual terminal offers. Um, so of course, uh, simplicity and convenience is gonna be a big thing, the larger reach as we talked about previously, uh, multi-user and multi-location access. So the ability to process, let's say for an example, you're a part of a company um, you know, here in Chicago, um, but you have a location in Florida and Colorado and New York, being the having the ability to just toggle a couple buttons to process uh, a transaction for that just allows for more convenience and obviously helps with your payment flow. Um, as we talked about before, credit card and ACH transactions, the level two or level three data. Level two and level three data is a, is a pretty niche thing and it's gonna be specific to business to business transactions for certain qualifying cards. So think of it this way, um, when one business is doing business uh, with another one, you have the ability to pass on certain line item information based upon that transaction to help alleviate risk and then actually qualify for a lower rate. That can typically save you anywhere from a quarter percent up to a full percent per transaction, which of course is a big thing, right? When, when transactions are, you know, 2.5, 2.7, 3.5%, to be able to save a quarter of a percent or even 1% makes up a massive difference on your bottom line. Um, the ability to score customer data, so not typing in the same 16-digit number over and over again, allowing uh, monthly memberships, installments with recurring billing is, is obviously a big feature. Customer reporting, you know, everybody's looking at information a little bit differently based upon their business model. So being able to grab the right reports specific to you, and of course, export that as an Excel, CSV, what have you. Custom admin settings, you know, maybe I'm able to run certain information uh, or do, do certain transactions versus maybe an hourly worker that can only run a transaction and they're not allowed to avoid a refund. Um, and then invoicing as well, just being able to send that link directly to the client that lay, cleanly leads out, excuse me, lays out um, you know, the services that took place, place the products, um, and an easy form for that client to go ahead and submit information. Andy, the, the advantages of the virtual terminal, are, are you thinking about the advantages as compared to just like in-person transactions, sort of for sort of an old school um, transaction, or are there advantages compared to just a traditional like e-commerce transaction? So is, is there a reason why a merchant would, if they already have like maybe an app or an online order system or something that they, they spend a lot of money in. Is there a reason why they would um, um, opt for a virtual terminal instead, or is a virtual terminal kind of kind of kind of a um, uh, <coughs> easily accessible to smaller merchants and merchants that haven't put in sort of more complicated self-service systems? Yeah, good question. I think you know it's it's at times it comes in tandem with it where you know it's just another feature so if you have a built out software that allows for payment to be transacted in there then that's fine 100 percent. especially if that's going to be uh client facing or customer facing whereas right. the business owners themselves say somebody calls in or say there was an, an issue with that transaction taking place you still have the ability to go ahead and log in and process that payment even going back to some of those smaller merchants themselves um, a lot of them aren't going to have sophisticated programs for whatever reason, you know, especially if we think about the bottom line, um, you know, if it's, if it's not something that's going to be uh, ne necessarily uh, a large advantage to them, just still having the ability to transact a payment. And let's say for some of these um, in-person transactions, if some, some of their system goes down, maybe their, their credit card machine goes down, but they still have data um, at their location, they still have internet access. Um, they can utilize the virtual terminal to ensure that they're staking, still taking payment, they're still running their business. Great, makes sense. 
Wonderful. Here's just a few options that you're most likely to see uh, out in the world um, when you're looking at virtual terminals or gateways. Um, you know, a lot of these are, are pretty much household names. You know, authorized.net uh, might be one of the most popular ones out there. It was actually purchased by Visa not too long ago. Um, Square, Adyen, PayPal, of course. Um, PayPal actually owns Braintree, so important to note there. Cardpoint, NMI. Again, just a, a couple household names and probably some of the most popular ones that you'll you'll see out on the internet. Um, obviously, these are just a few. There's several out there, um, but just good in terms of a frame of reference. Uh, CNP, what does card not present mean to banks and your bottom line? Um, this obviously, you know, again, as we compare uh, finances from card present to card not present transactions, obviously these e-commerce, it's just good to have this frame of reference um, to possibly offer the ability to do card not present as well as card not present. So what I mean by this, what you're looking at right now on your screen are these specific interchange rates tied from Visa uh, as of April of 2021. On the left side, you'll see card not present transactions, excuse me, card present transactions, and then on the right side, card not present transactions. On that left side, you're seeing a lot of 1.15% and 15 cents versus the right side, being 1.75% and 20 cents. Um, you know, it's just important to know here, um, as I'll kind of go into it on this next slide, there's higher risk associated when you're not seeing a client face-to-face. -face. And as a result, higher fees do occur. So Visa is helping protect themselves and then the banks helping to protect themselves um, just in case things go awry. And we'll touch on that uh, along with it, uh, with chargebacks here in a second. So terms that you will most likely see on your merchant statements, if you guys are staying aware um, of your merchant statements, what you're seeing, um, looks like my, my highlighting has become a bit off, but no worries there. Um, when you view your merchant statements at the end of the month, when you receive it from your processor, a couple terms that you want to look out for are, of course, CNP, which stands for card not present, um, keyed in, keyed entry, non-swipe, unqualified, or even non-qualified. Um, you're most likely uh, going to see those top four if you are on an interchange pricing method versus that last one unqualified um, if you're more likely on a tiered method. One key way to know about that is if you likely see on your statement uh, qualified, mid-qualified, or non-qualified. Um, again, something just to be uh, cautious of. So therefore, when you're looking at your statements and the interchange rates that associate with it, um, you're most likely going to see a higher cost associated. So of course, as I said, you know, less face-to-face -face transactions increase risk and chargebacks, AKA is disputes. So, you know, unfortunately sometimes, you know, things happen um, where the client's gonna say, hey, you know, I never agreed to pay for this. I want my money back. And chargebacks typically come as a result of three sources. So you have your criminal fraud, your friendly fraud, or even merchant error. Criminal fraud, obviously, being people purposely trying to take advantage of the system in place to steal money. Friendly fraud, when a customer is disputing the transaction rather than going through a normal channel just to request a refund, or even a merchant error. Maybe it was a mistake on the business end for whatever reason, or possibly having an incorrect billing descriptor um, to make it clear that the charge was indeed from that, excuse me, from that business. Um, sometimes on that uh, billing descriptor, it'll actually say the legal name of the business as opposed to the DBA name. So if I'm more familiar with your DBA name than your legal name, you might uh, that might just cause some confusion on the uh, merchant's end, or excuse me, the customer's end. Yeah, Andy, that's a really good point. I, I think it's I think it's worthwhile to kind of drill down in on this a little bit because if 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 you're new to dealing <coughs> dealing with chargebacks, one of the things that we've seen with COVID is that um, businesses that had done 70, 80% brick and mortar in-person transactions that really didn't have any exposure to chargeback or any sort of liability there, um, you know, now are doing 70, 80% of their transactions digital, either through the keyed-in transaction that Andy's talked about or whatever. You know, they're they're sort of brand new to dealing with chargebacks, and um, for businesses that that don't have a deep background. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a, it seems very complicated. There's 
40 or 50 visa alone has 40 or 50 different reason codes i think it's something like that um and so you would assume that hey there's 40 or 50 different reasons why a chargeback can happen but i think i think from from the it's best to sort of uh simplify the way that you frame the causes of chargebacks because each of the causes is going to have a drastically different approach um, and so understanding why those chargebacks happen is, is sort of the first fundamental step that uh, any merchant should do before they do literally anything else. Because, um, you know, what you would do to, to uh, rectify like stolen credit card, legitimate criminal fraud versus what you would do for instances of friendly fraud or merchant errors is, 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 requires a drastically different strategy. So I think it's important and I appreciate you, Andy, you, for you, you bringing that up. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, you know, another interesting part, thanks to you, uh, Jared, and your team, um, are some of these facts I was able to find. Um, you know, we know that business owners have plenty on their plate. Um, you know, they're, they're doing everything possible to keep businesses afloat, profitable, all that good stuff. Unfortunately, at times, money is going to be left on the table, right? As you'll see on the screen, 43% of the time, merchants respond to a chargeback. So, you know, less than half the time, merchants are going to take the time to respond to a chargeback. However, the average net recovery was only 12%. Again, I feel like there, there's money being left on the table. Um, and although 90% of the respondents claim that friendly fraud was a concern, you know, only 29% said that they would address the issue successfully. So, you know, I think sometimes, you know, if they don't have tools, you know, that chargebacks 911 offers, um, you know, they feel like it's going to be a big burden. It might not actually be worth their time. So hopefully, you know, some of the tools that you guys can offer, Jared, can help alleviate that time and ensure that the business owners are going to get the money that they're rightly owed. Absolutely. Awesome. So next we'll kind of touch on the, the tech associated with, um, you know, uh, not present transactions, right? So the online software, um, you know, software that integrates to shopping carts and all that stuff. Um, on the screen, um, online integration simply um, can be wrapped up into two concepts, right? You have utilizing uh, APIs um, that connect to one, one uh, software and another. Um, of course, there's two options here. You have your closed APIs and your open APIs. So an open API on the right-hand side, think of this like a very friendly um, open gate to the castle uh, type of communication where it allows for third parties and their communities to use the code to pass information freely from one source to another. Um, which of course helps expand your customer reach, right? Whereas, you know, a closed API, think of it like the gates of the castle is closed. Um, the business itself is going to hold on um, to their technology, to their software uh, to take full control. Um, so they're going to use, you know, private APIs. You know, they're not going to let too many people in there. Um, if you do, it's, you know, it's, it, you're going to be limited um, versus some of the free flowing API information out there. And we'll, we'll show you a few examples just to give a, a proper frame of reference. So on the left-hand side, you know, close is going to be your Shopify's, MindBodies, a lot of the gym memberships out there. Um, that software is actually backed by MindBody. You know, Square is a good example just because they have a pretty strong monopoly on anything that hits their system, it's going to be theirs. Then not too often are they going to allow for a third party to take place uh, other than, you know, typically an acquisition. Um, open APIs. You know, Wix, WooCommerce, BigCommerce, you know, with a lot of the companies, Jerry, that we work with, um, I'd say over 75% of individuals who are doing online transactions are going to use the WooCommerce shopping cart um, that's native to WordPress. Um, so, you know, within WooCommerce, some of those virtual terminals, those gateways that we touched on earlier are going to have an integration directly into WooCommerce based upon its popularity. And the reason that they're able to do that um, is its open API. The next slide actually, uh, this screen actually comes from a company called um, iAdvise. iAdvise is actually a pretty cool tool that helps with um, shopping cart abandonment and just ensuring that the business owner themselves is providing the best online experience uh, to the customer um, just to help, again, decrease um, the customer abandonment and increase conversion. Um, in this chart, you'll see that it kind of backs up what we talked about earlier um, about the increase in value over the next five years um, on a per user basis. You know, more people are spending more online and uh, significantly more um, online. You know, over 60% of those that were interviewed said so. 
Um, and then, you know, versus in-store and online, they agree, hey, as a result, if I'm spending more, you know, I'm going to probably be more inclined to shop online because of that experience rather than going into a retail store for a number of reasons. So again, I think as we shift, as this becomes a new norm, um, you know, the, the, the trends are, are going to favor in this way. So just expect, you know, more convenience when, when payment uh, is needed um, and, and just be able to provide your client multiple options in order to pay you. We want to help eliminate um, any barriers to entry uh, for you, of course, to get paid. And Andy, I, I, I forgot, I would, we had a poll here that we were going to launch at the beginning. I'm going to go ahead and launch that now. Um, okay. If everybody, if, if you if you want to kind of chime in, I'm just curious about how um, everyone on this is uh, currently transacting. So I think um, you should all see a poll right now. Um, if you could select any that you um you can you can select more than one but any any of the ones where you you um you accept any of the channels through which you currently accept a uh you know notable amount of your transactions Let that go for another 10 seconds. So, All right. Ian, your answers. Final answer. <laughs> okay. Okay, and go ahead and hit share. There you go. All right, now I can't see. So hopefully, um, so hopefully you guys are, it's, it's showing the poll. Um, but it looks like the majority, it seems like 80% uh, are accepting through um, websites, another 40% are accepting through apps. Um, at least half of the audience accepts transactions over the phone. That's that's interesting, um, especially that virtual terminal that you were talking about, Andy. And then yeah. another, uh, a third um, accept some transactions in person. So, so that's interesting. That's kind of what you would expect, specifically given, you know, the, the uh, topic today. Right. Um, so given that. Let's see. Andy, do you want to go ahead and uh, take things from here? Yes, sir. All right. Looks like uh, there we go. Now we're moving. All right. Great. So I think last, um, just to kind of wrap up here as we we shift over to the Q and A itself, um, just allowing um, you know the the opportunity to learn a little bit about um, those card present transactions and obviously the benefits uh, in terms of taking them, especially with the equipment itself. Um, some of the pros and cons associated uh, with both parts. Uh, so we'll touch on this quickly because, um, again, as as we looked at those interchange rates and the cost associated, you know, at times, if if there is an opportunity to take payment in person, um, so if you can go out in the field and see that client, you know, that's just going to help, uh, again, your bottom line. So depending upon the size of the transaction, figuring out a way to go, go see that client might end up being more cost effective, might be worth it, might be a profitable venture. Um, so for those that are taking uh, cards in person or are thinking about it, you, know, you essentially have two options in terms of equipment. Um, again, I think that the pandemic has definitely helped um, shift mobility in terms of payments rather than you know stationary uh, equipment. What's nice about the stationary equipment, obviously, is you're going to have a dedicated connection. You don't have to worry about you know, losing cell data. Um, there's a lot of software value uh, associated with card present transactions and integrations um, to it. Um, obviously, as a result, you're going to be stuck to where you are um, at your physical store, your physical location. Um, and there's, of course, a higher cost associated um, with some of these uh, terminals. Again, they're getting fancier. They're getting more sophisticated. Um, so depending upon what you needed to do, it could be pretty costly, but it also could be worth it. And obviously, you have your mobile options. Um, uh, this, excuse me, the options that you're seeing below are specific to Clover, who is one of our partners, who does a great job with their equipment, um, offering Bluetooth devices, um, Wi-Fi, LTE connections, all that good stuff. Um, so, of course, with mobile, you have your flexibility and mobility. Uh, it's always going to be user-friendly just to make it simple, convenient, get the payment and move on. Um, and then environmentalism, right? You don't have to worry about 
you know, sometimes paper receipts, you can just send uh, a receipt via text, via email, um, helping the world out a little bit. Of course, you are going to be a bit more uh, succumbed to data connections. Um, sometimes when we're giving sleek um, equipment out there and it's going to be out in the field, you do have to worry about the durability. Um, a lot of it's going to be, you know, plastic. Um, so just being cautious of that. And then technical savviness. You know, it's interesting saying user friendliness to tech savviness, but more so in terms of troubleshooting, right? Um, if you aren't the most technical savvy individual, um, sometimes just getting trained on making sure that the data connection occurs. If there is an issue, just knowing how to quickly solve that um, sometimes is a bit of a learning curve, uh, but ultimately I think it's going to be worth it. Andy, how do, the, how do the fees relate? So I know um, card not present, you're going to have you pay a little bit more per transaction yeah. um, in order to be able to accept that credit card. Is is there any difference between the mobile and the stationary? Is that, is there an advantage or or from a processing standpoint, do you guys kind of look at both of those as being the same? Yeah, it, it's funny. It, it pretty much is the same. And the reason why is based upon how the card brands view it, right? You have your card present versus your card not present. And right. simply put, it basically comes into, hey, was the card used or not? Right. Um you know, so even as tap to pay becomes, you know, a pretty big feature, you know, are you, you are still physically using it, even though you're not inserting it into the machine, um, like a, a chip or swiping it like mag, um, but that card is still being used. So they, they basically leave it out pretty black and white to say, hey, if a card is being used, it's going to be a card present um, fee um, versus anytime that number is going to be, you know, typed in the full 16 digit number, that's going to be you know, card not present keyed in. Okay. That's interesting. All right. Well, that's good. All right. So that's that's the the, the presentation portion of um, today. So now we're gonna see if we can get through a few of these questions that were asked. Um, we'll try to try to get through as many as we can. Um, the first one, um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce this person's name, but um, they asked um, how to reduce the risk of chargebacks. This is, to be honest with you, this is a question we get asked almost no matter what topic we're doing a webinar on. Um, somebody's going to ask this question. So. Um, the the 10,000 foot answer is it really depends on what your chargeback liability is. Um, so if you are a business where you have a genuine fraud liability, right? So that means you're selling something that, like if you're selling a digital product that has a resale value, for example, or, you know, um, um, gift cards or something like that, um, then the, <coughs> one of the easiest things you could do is yeah, address criminal fraud. Um, you know, if if you have a problem with friendly fraud, so if you're recurring billing, a subscription billing, something like that, and friendly fraud is going to be your, your biggest option, um, then really the two levers that you have are um, customer service, right? Notifying consumers, making cancellations as easy as possible um, within reason. Of course, we don't want to make it super, super easy. You know, you, you want to put, you know, uh, make enable people to cancel, but um, give them definitely a lot of uh, opportunities or a, a lot of excuses not to cancel. And then the the second thing that you can do is um, implement uh, different pre chargeback prevention tools. Um, we used to call them chargeback alerts. They're still sort of colloquially called called that, but there's a variety of tools that that basically allow you to circumvent the chargeback process by either offering additional information to show that the transaction was legitimate. So um, that helps eliminate the cases of uh, illegitimate cases where people are claiming criminal fraud, but really it's just uh, that they're not recognizing the charge or one of the other things. Um, and then uh, in cases where somebody just wants a refund, uh, you know, what you can do is you can avoid the chargeback by issuing the refund and sending that confirmation along. So um, th those are those are ways that you can uh, reduce chargebacks. At the end of the day, the the thing you know the things that you need to do generally when we when we review a merchant is just basic good stuff right if you if you're recurring billing let people know that they're going to be billed again you know don't do anything sneaky there um, you know if if it takes two weeks for you to ship a product make sure that they know that and have that expectation before they agree to purchase a product because uh, you know and if if somebody's unhappy make sure that they have uh, a customer service line that they can access so that's that's basically it. Um, if, you know, if, if, uh, really evaluating your business would be required for me to give you any better advice. Um, 
the next person asks, how to best protect your business by uh, mail order, telephone order transactions? And I think, Andy, you had some ideas about this? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So first and foremost, when it, when it comes to moto transactions, we, we want to be very cautious about obviously how we're gaining that information and where it's going. We, we of course, don't want to you know, write it down on a sticky note and leave that information out in the open for anybody to get. You know, there's guidelines in place when it comes to credit card processing set forth by what's called PCI compliance, excuse me, compliance or the payment card industry um, that merchants typically need to, you know, do in order to become compliant. Um, that just is a set of security standards to ensure that you are taking credit cards securely. You're not leaving information out in the open for anybody to get. You know, Jared, to your point, you know, doing just simple good things, you know, not not just randomly charging clients, making sure that there's open communication, there's paper trails that show, you know, what that transaction is going to be for, um, all that good stuff. You know, grabbing as much detail as possible regarding that transaction, the 16-digit number, the expiration date, the CVV code, uh, all billing details, including the zip code. You know, those are going to be, um, of course, top of mind. And if you can, just go ahead and run um, like a $1 uh, authorization. That's going to help uh, legitimize that the transaction actually ties to the correct credit card, so you're not getting a decline. Um, and then, of course, um, doing an AVS authorization or an address verification, just ensuring that the client that who is giving you in the information has the correct billing details associated with that transaction. Um, Jan wanted to uh, wanted some information about e-signatures in regard to chargebacks. Um, so I don't have a ton of information here. So so what? Generally, when we talk about e-signatures and when we talk about contracts, um, a lot of times what the person is asking is, hey, is there something I can put? Is there a contract that I can have somebody sign that would make it so that they couldn't file a chargeback? And there really isn't one. Um, you know, if you know, in, anytime you have evidence that you can submit when you're just uh, refuting a charge or disputing a charge. Um, or not disputing a charge, disputing a chargeback, um, you know, that's a good thing. So having people use e-signatures in order to to confirm that they agreed to specific terms is is a good idea if you can build that into your workflow. You don't want to introduce too much friction in a lot of circumstances, I imagine. But if you have, you know, sort of the, the capacity to do that, if you have a unique situation where, um, you know, people are going to be willing to, to sign contracts. Now, the expectation can't be on your part that you're going to put in the contract you can't file a dispute no matter what right because that's not unfortunately that's not going to be something that that is going to be very helpful to you um, so the rules generally with e-signatures that that i would recommend are the same as the rules with any terms and conditions right you know having somebody agree to terms and conditions is great but if it's something around the 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 transaction so if it's for example you're agreeing to a one dollar transaction today and then if you don't cancel in 30 days we're going to bill you 30 dollars that can't be inside of a bunch of legalese in your terms and conditions right that's not enough you need a very clear disclosure so if if you're going to utilize e-signatures i think it's a great idea but they need to be in documents that are very very clear and they need to they, they can't be attached to very long complicated contracts if what you're going to do is try to reduce chargebacks um, if you want to if you want a document that's going to stand up in court then you know great make it as long as you want do whatever you want as long as you have the uh uh, funds to pay for the lawyers to to defend you in court. But um, if if what you're going to try to do is try to overturn a a chargeback, you really need to keep those uh, contracts and terms as simple as possible um, if if you're going to want them to be uh, considered valid. Um, best uh, process for ACH authentications. So this is yeah. now, now I, see now I understand what this question means. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so I guess it's similar to the, the moto transactions, right? And so anytime a financial transaction takes place, we want to make sure that that uh, information, you know, is legitimate. Um, so th they kind of go hand in hand from ACH as well as credit card. Um, and, and of course, we want to be protective of providing the clients, you know, a positive experience rather than, again, putting a bunch of uh, barriers uh, in front um, just to get paid. But, you know, a couple of things that obviously come to mind, you know, double confirming that bank account and routing number, 
um, utilizing a check guarantee service with ACH processors. Um, you know, some of them offer uh, check guarantee just to make sure that whatever transaction does occur, you can still get funded. Um, and then obviously ensuring that the business name or the individual is tied directly to that bank account. You know, I've seen individuals request board checks ahead of time. Um, I've seen people pair that along with an, a copy of an ID. Um, so just a couple of uh, options that, you know, come top of mind. This next question is, what area are you seeing the largest increase in chargebacks? Um, so our contention has been that the largest increase in chargebacks is due to friendly fraud. Um, and the argument that we make for this is that, you know, uh, the friendly fraud, there's, there's a mechanism that's sort of training consumers to commit friendly fraud. Maybe I'm saying that that wrong, but... But here's so most people the first time they file a chargeback it's because you know they noticed a transaction on their credit card that they didn't make right so somebody got a hold of their credit card number and they started buying you know TVs or something and then uh, that they looked at their credit card and they're like what is it what are these transactions uh, they call their bank and the, the bank gets the uh, the um, the payment taken off the sort of next thing that happens is you know somebody will get legitimately ripped off somebody will you know fall for one of those scams on uh facebook or whatever with you know they buy something where it's a uh dji drone and then they get like a little cheap drone in the mail uh three months later or something like that uh you know and and in the, in that case you have a very legitimate case to to call up and file a chargeback but what happens is Banks have an incentive to make you feel comfortable using your credit card and keep you happy as a customer so that you continue to use that credit card as your preferred payment method, right? Because they make them 1%, 2%, whatever it is. Um, they, they make a, 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 a small transaction fee every time you use that credit card. Um, so their incentive is to make you feel safe and secure and happy and, and not feel ripped off and not feel like, I'm, I don't want to use my credit card next time. So... Um, what ends up happening is customers become accustomed to the idea that, hey, if anybody rips me off, if I'm ever dissatisfied, if anything ever goes wrong in any way with any purchase that I make online, all I have to do is contact their bank. And, and what happens is the bank becomes the default sort of place that they go and resolve issues. And so that's usually what friendly fraud is. It's not the instance of somebody, I mean, there is instances of that, but I would say it's the minority instance. Usually it's it's a customer that's been conditioned to not deal with the merchant, but go directly to their bank anytime they have an issue, anytime the clothes don't fit, anytime the shipment's late, anytime whatever, um, they're just going to go to their bank because to them that's easier. A lot of times they don't even need to speak to anybody. They can just go online and uh, uh, press any button. So um, what's happening is that people are getting conditioned to to do that, but it but it doesn't happen overnight, right? It's uh, you know it, it takes a while for uh, the the consumers to develop that habit, and more and more consumers are developing that habit. So um, at least in the last five years, I would say friendly fraud is the area where um, we've seen the greatest increase. And then this, the other areas is something that Andy and I talked about earlier is that because of COVID, we're we're getting a lot of clients where they just are brand new to card not present, right? All of these industries are switching to card not present models um, that before were all card present, right? All, think about your fast food, think about, you know, your mom and pop store that that was, you know, all dine in and, and now they're doing, you know, half of their business through carry out. And, um, and so we're seeing all kinds of chargebacks um, that are that are coming from people sort of abusing the the, the system and sort of targeting um, fresh meat, I would say, like uh, merchants that, that, that aren't as accustomed and don't have um, all of the safeguards in place that uh, maybe a veteran uh, card not present merchant would have in place. Okay, well, this will, we'll make this our last one because we're getting um, a little bit a little bit long here. So, um, is tap and go higher risk than uh, than the chips? Tim wants to know this. Yeah. Andy, do you have a sense of that? Great question, especially as these kind of become the the new norm um, over the past decade or so. You know, chips EMV um, actually stands for Euro Mastercard Visa. So, it actually started over in Europe before it got adopted um, over here in the U.S. And obviously these NFC 
payments, also known as tap to pay. NFC standing for near field communication. You know, these are definitely becoming more popular. So trying to gain an understanding, Tim, on you know what what is going to be riskier than one or the other, I think is a is a very good thought. Um, I wouldn't say there's actually you know necessarily one being riskier than the other. And the reason why I say this is kind of twofold. Um, you know, a lot of times, if if for whatever reason we we have a bad apple in the in the the mix, they're going to try to determine some sort of way um, to process that payment. So maybe they're going to say, "Hey, the, the chip isn't working. Go ahead and swipe the card." They're going to try to you know skirt around that. Or if they're tap to pay, you know, it's a very quick transaction. So not it's not too often that someone's going to sit there and just question you know a quick tap to pay. What, what I will say though, you know, it is interesting as more technology is evolved. For instance, I have you know a couple of my credit cards synced up to my iPhone, um, so that's the same thing. That's still tap to pay. That's stay, still near field communication. But actually, I think that um, helps uh, give a, a bit more security. The reason why I say that is, you know, in order to access that credit card information on your phone, you have to put in your PIN number or, you know, Apple's going to read your face, they're going to read your uh, finger. Uh, and then on top of that, there might be another layer of two-factor two authentication um, to ensure that you have the passcode to access, um, you know, a certain uh, software application to make that payment. Um, so the reason why I bring this up is, as I was thinking about this a little bit more last night, um, I still think that, you know, I don't want to say that one is necessarily riskier than the other, but I think that, you know, tap to pay that there are, you know, some features in place just to make sure that the right person um, is making that payment. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. So, but from the, from the cards, from the, uh, uh, the transaction fee schedule, um, is there a difference between an EMV payment, a chip payment and a, and a tap to pay payment? Or are they basically both just considered card present? Yeah, great question. And it still comes to this, uh, the same thing. So even though, you know, my, my card is on my phone, it's in the processor, the bank's eyes, you know, the card was still physically used. Um, and again, like the, the differentiator being, you know, was a card used or was somehow that 16 digit number typed in instead? All right, I'm going to put our email addresses up there. If anybody has any questions um, after this webinar, if there's something we said that just didn't make any sense or you'd like to, you know, maybe speak to either Andy or myself about one of the, the tools that we mentioned during the webinar, um, our emails are up, um, you know, feel free to email us. I'm, I'm sure that uh, Andy or myself, if, if we don't have the answer, we'll definitely make an introduction and get you to somebody that can help you. Uh, thank you again for joining us today and I um, hope to see you next time. Thanks, everybody.